On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Bill today. We are talking about Truth and Reconciliation Day and where this should go from here. It's a day, but surely there's more to it than that. What should that be? We'll discuss. We're talking about Hamilton City Council and its decision on how to replace Chad Collins, who has won a federal seat and his seat in council is now open. What should they do? What are they going to do? Is it the right move? And neighborhoods, neighbors. There are new numbers out that show how important good neighbors are. Are you one of them? Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First up today, though, if you're out walking about, if you do get out of the house, you will surely see orange shirts out in public. Today is National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Became an official day that we mark now earlier this year after the discovery of unmarked graves in former residential schools. Dr. Dawn Lavelle Harvard is the president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. She joins us now. Dr. Harvard, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Do you say, do you say happy National Truth and Reconciliation Day? Or I don't, I don't know if we know what the proper greeting is yet. Right. And, and I think this is, is the crux of it, is that this day has just been created. And I think we're all trying to work our way through exactly what does this mean? What do we do on this day? How do we uh, manage that need to keep this a, a solemn day to honor those children, uh, to honor those survivors and those who didn't survive, those who were forced to go to the residential schools? Um, how do we begin that process of reconciliation? And so it's not really a holiday per se. And, and here in Ontario, I think that was Part of why when the chiefs were consulted on whether the province should make it a you know, day off of work, they said they wanted, you know, they want our young people to be in schools like Remembrance Day where they're going to be learning and, and because that's an important part of what we're supposed to be doing today. So you're okay then with the idea, because this has been a, a, you know, a topic like in Remembrance Day. You mentioned Remembrance Day. It's a good example. Um, there are, it's been a real topic of discussion. Is this undercutting the importance of the day if we don't give it the full holiday treatment? You're okay with that? Yeah. And, and I think, again, this is why you know, our leadership, those chiefs in our, across all of Ontario said what we really want is for young people, for everybody to be doing something, because part of the concern, you know, even the word holiday, right, like implies, let's go barbecue, even as you said, like happy reconciliation day, like what they were asking for was, was a national day of remembrance and mourning, like Remembrance Day, so that people could really take time to, to grieve and to mourn and, and to remember and to recognize and acknowledge and, and do this, that it's not a, a day off work, a holiday per se, where, you know, you know, half of our kids are going to be watching Netflix, playing video games, and a lot of us would be taking the chance to put away all the summer stuff and the deck chairs as, you know, taking advantage of a day off work to sort of get things done that we're all frantically trying to do. And so that was part of the vision, which really needs to be a day for people to come together to honor and to remember, not a holiday per se. How, and you've touched on it, but how do you, um, how do you define this day it, i mean it, obviously as you say it's a day of mourning and of looking back is it is it would you also see it as a day of looking forward or is this entirely a day to remember well and and i think you know this is, a, this is the thing when we talk about reconciliation everybody wants to jump to reconciliation and we're all using the word reconciliation and none of us myself included 
really know what that means. Hmm. Really, and and we're so we're all trying to find our way through this process, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, in terms of, of how we get there. Um, but one of the fundamental points of that process that we need to remember is that it was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, reconciliation is only half of this process. That first we have to have that truth. We have to embrace that truth and know that truth and own that truth of our, you know, the, the very ugly history of Canada's treatment of Indigenous peoples in order for us to begin that process of healing, to begin that process of reconciliation, in order for us to start to look forward, because that's what reconciliation is going to be about, is coming to a place where we can understand that history, you know, try to, now that we know, do things differently moving forward, and you know, use our position, use our knowledge to improve things so that those future generations of First Nations of Indigenous children have a brighter future or you know, any kind of future at all that, that those children that were in the mass graves never had. You know, you, you raise a really interesting point that it, you say we want to jump to reconciliation. The fact that we had something called the Truth and Reconciliation, Truth and Reconciliation Committee, we came up with the Truth and Reconciliation reports and recommendations, and we've named this day the Truth and Reconciliation Day. If you choose the name, the same as the report, the same as what happened, it, it invariably is going to become a political. There's a connection there. Would, would this have been a? Would it have been a better thing to have a different name for today so we don't lump the politics with what we're doing today? Interestingly, now that you bring it up and you, you bring it to my mind, I think it might have been better if we had called this National Truth and Reconciliation Day, because then people would really have in their mind that this is a day of remembering. And, you know, that's why this is so important, is that we need to know that truth. We need to remember that truth. And we need to teach those children and we need to teach those future generations so that we can understand how we got to where we are, so that we can also, I mean, one, so that we end the discrimination and, and the you know, prejudice treatment of Indigenous peoples, but also so that we can start really doing our part and taking up our responsibilities to honour those treaties that if we start looking at them and honouring them, then Indigenous peoples you know, have an opportunity, would have an opportunity to really be strong, self-sustaining communities um, that that was taken away. Let's go to that second part you just said about making strong, sustainable communities that can be successful. That, you know, this is one day, this is a day to remember for sure, but there are obviously broader issues at play here. And we just came through a federal election. There was talk about reconciliation. There were some promises made. Do you think enough was made of the issue on the campaign trail or was it just enough for politicians to mollify the people who were listening to say, yeah, we remember and then let's move on to other things? I mean, these parts, I, I don't take election campaign promises very seriously. Um, it's, it's like, you know, when you're on a first blind date with somebody, everybody presents their best promises. But <laughs> what really matters is what's going to happen. And I think that's, that's the real issue because promises are easily broken, as we've seen. What really matters is, you know, what are they going to do now? And seeing the announcement yesterday that the federal court upheld the Human Rights Tribunal's ruling that the federal government owes reparations to First Nations children. I mean, here's a very concrete example of if your campaign word said that the relationship, that nation-to-nation relationship with Indigenous peoples, with First Nations, is, you know, of the utmost importance to the Liberal government, then here's an opportunity 
to walk the talk, to show the truth, and to honor those words and that commitment by saying, we will honor that judgment, that ruling from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and agree that, yes, the Canadian Human Rights Act applies to everybody, including the federal government, in order to protect the basic human rights of First Nations children, let's stop appealing this decision, act on it, you know, provide those reparations, and start doing things differently. Yeah, and, and you know, look, I, I, we all understand that in these cases, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you uh, fought this ruling initially, that it means you are anti-Indigenous. There could be nuance. That said, and you know, most people have not dove deep enough into the ruling and the issue to know. But that said, no matter how it goes, you're absolutely right. If you're promising something on the campaign trail and this is going on, it is not a good look. It doesn't send a good message. Well, and that's exactly it. And, and if you want to have debates about how we implement that ruling, about how we provide reparations, about how we do the right thing and make this situation right, then let's have those conversations. But let's not go back and fight that, you know, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal shouldn't have made that ruling. Let's talk about how we can use that ruling, implement it in a good way to change the system and end the discrimination and create better futures for our kids. Let's start having that decision in a solutions-oriented way rather than nitpicking process and who should have, should have, would have, could have. Let's start saying, okay, this has pointed out that there was a big gap here. And if we're serious about reconciliation on today of all days, let's announce, let's have that conversation that we will honor that we have to do right by those children. I know we're not supposed to be having, you know, jokes on this day, but your comment about the first date with the political leaders was pretty good. I got to tell you, um, th- but we come through an election campaign. And the reason I say that is we come through this election campaign. And again, we're talking about all the promises and the things that were said. The current government has been in office for six years. And of the 94 recommendations, the National Post says only 15 have been enacted. And then you get to the election campaign and suddenly it becomes very, very important. Well, why in the last number of years have, has this not happened? Like it does seem like it's a, and not just for the liberals, for, for all the parties, it does seem like it's almost a show or a, you know, we're going to present this to show you we really care. But then when you have the opportunity to do something, well, we'll, we'll get to it. Well, and I think this is the thing. I think, you know, the government uh, came in in a somewhat naive uh, with all of these grand promises uh, without really acknowledging the fact that you cannot fix decades, generations of neglect and underfunding in First Nations communities in four or even six years. You know, this is a very big task they set out in, in a somewhat naive way. Um, and, and then when actually in the position realized, okay, this is a much, much bigger task, but that doesn't mean you walk away. That doesn't mean, you know, that says, okay, that means our, our job is bigger. So that means we need to roll up our sleeves and really dig in and start moving these things forward and, and really having an active, uh, a strategic plan um, on how that's going to happen. And I think that's really what's needed at this stage is some kind of strategy to take those recommendations and say, you know, which ministers are going to be responsible for these recommendations? What is that going to look like? Obviously needs to be developed with Indigenous people. And, you know, to your point about humor, um, one thing that we have learned as Indigenous people as we've you know, survived for these hundreds of years, is that sometimes humor and laughter really is the best medicine. And, and on solemn days like this, it's important to remember to, to come together and laugh together and, and share that joy because that's what, what helps keep us moving forward. Many of the 
recommendations of those 94 recommendations, I, I, I think would probably not be widely noticeable to the broader public if they are implemented. These are things that are, you know, again, deep dives into, into issues that wouldn't get a lot of attention. But one of them that probably would is a promise that many of the leaders made on the campaign trail. And that is that they would make Indigenous languages official languages of Canada alongside English and French. Should that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something I've been complaining about since I was in kindergarten and had to go to French class. That 100%, if we really want to walk the talk, if we really want to talk about reconciliation, if we really want to honor Indigenous nations as you know, we, we need to get away from this notion of founding fathers and founding nations, you know, and, and make sure that we're actually including Indigenous people in that conversation, then recognizing Indigenous languages is absolutely critical. And we're at a, a really important point in our history where our languages are going to disappear or survive based on what we do right now. We're at a really, really critical point where they are in, in danger of disappearing if we don't tar- start you know, upping the action, start really committing to and making an official language. That's a really we, important step. And we only have a minute left here, but what would that mean in, in real practical terms? I mean, it, would the idea be that government, federal government officials would have it? Or would, or is it right down to it would be taught in schools alongside English and French like students get right now? Do, do, do we know what that would mean? Well, and I think that's that's going to be part of what it is, right? That if you have enough Indigenous students and say that they have, then they would have the right to communicate in their language. And that's going to make a big difference for Indigenous children in terms of that being used across the country. We've seen it in New Zealand, we've seen it in Wales, we've seen it in other countries where, you know, making the Indigenous language, the original languages, official languages, have significant impact on the ability to preserve and, and revitalize those languages. At the grassroots level, absolutely. It's going to be in store. It's going to be in government offices. It's going to be, you know, even the conversation about our current governor general where everybody was upset that she was not officially bilingual. But people were kind of missing the point that she is bilingual. She speaks Inuk and she speaks English. She is bilingual, but we have our brain so focused on bilingual meaning only English and French, and that's what we need to expand if we want to have real reconciliation in this country and acknowledge the significance and that place of, of nation to nation, that place of Indigenous people. Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, President of the Ontario Native Women's Association. Wish we had more time, but very much appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. And, you know, whatever it is that you send your day. <laughs> whatever the greeting it's, it's is, yes. One. You as yeah. well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We here in Hamilton uh, have a city councillor that is no longer going to be a city councillor. That is not all that unusual. It happens at times for various different reasons. In this particular case, it's Chad Collins, councillor for Ward 5, who ran for the Liberals in the federal election last Monday, and he won to replace Bob Bertina, another former city councillor and mayor. Well, because Chad Collins is now leaving council and there is about a year left in the term, leaving the ward unrepresented is not a feasible option. So city council was faced with two choices yesterday. One, pass a bylaw that would call for a by-election to replace Collins and fill that seat. Or two, appoint someone to fill that seat. Well, council chose door number two. They are going to be appointing someone 
to do this. Was this the right decision? I want to bring in John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, how are you today? Well, Scott, nice chatting with you. You as well. It's been a long, long time. Um, you think they made the right call to go with the appointment method? I do. Um, you know, the clerk uh, explained it, I think, the best yesterday. Uh, she said that uh, if they were to go the, the by-election route, that um, because of statutory uh, requirements to, you know, post things and uh, give people time to uh, file applications and so on, uh, and then to actually declare the election, and then again, there has to be a, a campaign period, uh, she said that they wouldn't have uh, a successful candidate in the chair until March. So with that in mind, it, it seemed like it really it was kind of a no-brainer. And, um, you know, council has done it both ways. They, they've gone the appointment route. And when there was a longer period before the next election, they've gone the, they've gone the, uh, the, the by-election route. So, you know, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, I guess, I think we've seen one or two of both uh, being, uh, both uh, solutions being used. So I think this one was probably the right decision. One of the comments that was made, and I, I can't remember which counselor said it, so I'm not trying to cheat someone out of their moment of, in the sun here, but I can't remember who said it, but um, that if you were to have a by-election in the middle of winter, um, following a federal election, leading into a provincial election, which immediately is followed by a municipal election, that by-election might not have almost anyone show up because people would just be bombarded with elections and there would be fatigue. Do you agree with that? Well, even without those elections, all those other elections, uh, you know, in a, in a, first of all, in a municipal election, we're, we're looking at a little over a third of the electorate votes. So you get into a by-election, uh, you're, you're probably looking at a, a 20, 25% turnout, uh, for, if you're lucky. And so, and because it is an open seat, you're probably going to get 15 candidates or a dozen or, you know, you're going to get a large number of candidates. So, so somebody uh, may end up getting 900 votes and winning it all. And I, you know, how, how democratic is that really when you get down to it? I mean, yes, uh, an election is obviously a, a clear expression of the public's will, but, you know, with the lack of interest, um, really at this stage of the game, I don't think there's from a democracy, you know, if you're talking about, you know, honoring democracy, I don't think there's a hell of a lot of difference really, uh, you know, given the, the abysmal turnout for municipal elections generally. You know, and you mentioned democratic. I mean, that, that's a, that's obviously it's, it's an important issue. We don't want to be, um, not paying attention to the democratic parts of this, I wrote something in the paper this week. My suggestion, and I, I, I believe this, I wasn't just saying it, is, you know, the most democratic and the quickest way is you have an appointment, but you appoint the runner-up from the last election. They ran, they got votes. People voted for that person. Therefore, you can defend that as a democratic choice. It's not just plopping someone in out of the blue. Um, I'll let you take a shot at that one if you want to. It's okay. My skin is thick. Good idea or bad idea? I, I think it's been done. Um, I'm not sure if it's been done in Hamilton, but I've certainly uh, worked in markets where exactly uh, that was done. Uh, the, the runner-up got the, um, you know, got to fill the, the, the position. One of the counselors raised the issue yesterday. You're looking at a guy like Chad Collins, who got 80% of the vote last time. And uh, I don't know how many people ran against him, two or three. 
do you do you apply the runner-up rule when when the runner-up perhaps only got three or four hundred votes or six hundred votes? Um, I mean, you know, I guess the principle is the principle, but. Um, you know, if it was a tight race, um, you know, I'm thinking the one, uh, the by-election, this was a by-election, but if I'm thinking of the race uh, between uh, the Donna Skelly won over yes. John Paul Danko, um, there might have been an argument made there uh, to appoint Danko to her seat, but because there was so much time uh, after she left to uh, to run for the uh, provincial parliament, they felt that, you know, really a by-election was the fairer way of settling that, and he ended up winning it anyway. It sounds as though, and not even just sounds, I mean, it would, it would be shocking at this point, listening to council's discussions yesterday, if the person who got appointed to that seat was not somebody who sat around that table before. I mean, uh, John, I don't know, you, you were listening. I... I if they were to choose someone after the comments I heard that hadn't been a counselor before, I'd fall out of my chair. Is that yeah? The I, right I choice? think most council, uh, uh, you know, the mayor made it very clear that he he wants to see somebody that can hit the ground running, uh, somebody that served in the uh, in, he called it in the area, but I think he means uh, in the ward. I'm not sure if you can do that because Chad's been around for 25 years, so. You're, you're not going to find somebody that recently served, but certainly... And, and, um, and sorry to interrupt, but the guy before him was Dominic Agostino, and that's not a... That's you know, not an option either. He's gone, so yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess you could look at somebody like um, Doug Conley, who, who represented uh, Upper Stony Creek, but at least would have some familiarity with the area. I have no idea if he's interested or not. Um, Bob Rutina would check all the boxes, except that I think he'd probably like to keep his options open. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing and, and it's the kind of thing where council, you know, is, is going to be criticized no matter what they do. If, if they had gone the by-election route, uh, there, there'd be all kinds of people criticizing the expenditure and, you know, the seat's going to sit there for, open for six months with no representation while all the process is followed. It's kind of a no-win situation, really. Mm. Uh, but, and you, you mentioned know. Bob Bertina. You mentioned you mentioned uh, Bob Bertina, John, and that's boy. Um, Wouldn't that first of all? Th- yeah, for, I'm saying uh, I'm not sure that they're going to appoint Bob Bertina because there's a number of them there who I'm not sure are Bob Bertina's best friend. But two, you said he wants to keep his options open, and that's something else that councillors made very clear yesterday, and they've made this clear in the past. There is a real desire to have someone who has no intention of running in the next election, they've said, because they don't want someone to get an advantage. Yeah, and, and I, I rather enjoyed the debate. Uh, I, I did follow it. And um, what, what I found interesting is, and, and you know, uh, Scott, from, from your time watching this council, that once you get elected on this council, um, I, in fact, I did a little survey of the last four elections. So let's say that's 64 well, let's just talk about council seats. So that's 60 council seats uh, that, that theoretically were up for grabs in four elections. Only two incumbents have ever been defeated. So, oh. so once you get elected, it's like you got a 97% chance of getting reelected. So here's all these people sitting around the table with tenure. You might as well call it tenure. And, and they're fretting over somebody serving 11 months and, and maybe having a leg up. Uh, uh, if if they decided to run for the seat. So I found it a little ironic that, you know, they're all sitting there uh, 
solidified in their positions more or less and uh, and and yet they're worried about somebody gaining a slight advantage for doing you know maybe 11 months on on a council seat do you think it would do you think 11 months like not even a quarter of a term especially when you consider that a big chunk of that would be the summertime when council yep. sort of ramps down a little bit and then the fall when there would be an election campaign so there's not city council really sitting doing much do you think that incumbency would get would provide a big advantage to someone who went into that seat it would provide even some with advantage. your co- even with what uh, you said? It, it would depend on how they conducted themselves uh, now you'll recall Terry Anderson uh, was appointed uh, initially to fill um, a seat uh, uh, initially on the mountain, and uh, he was very quiet. I mean, he, he came to the meetings. He, you know, he participated, but he didn't make a lot of speeches. He didn't draw a lot of attention to himself. So uh, I, I think it would depend on how that individual chose to conduct themselves. If they if they were thinking of running. And, and the clerk made it very clear that even if somebody promised not to run, uh, there is no law, there's nothing in the Municipal Act, if they decided and they changed their mind, that there's nothing to stop them from putting their name on a ballot. So, uh, although uh, the two examples I can think of are Terry Anderson and, um, and, and of course, Bob Morrow filling in for the late Bernie Morelli, and in both cases, I, I don't recall a situation where somebody reneged on, on that promise, but... The bottom line is it, it is it, it's legally possible to do it. One comment that really uh, raised a number of eyebrows, it seems, came from Judy Partridge, who talked as she was describing this and about the reason to have an appointment and you don't just dump someone in here. Is mm-hmm. how complex a counselor's job is. She referred to as referred to it as an executive level position, and the interpretation some clearly have taken from that is that the average person just isn't up to the task. Now, I don't know if that's a fair interpretation. Is that how you heard it? Um, I, you know, I think I would have chosen different words, um, but, but I mean, she does make a good point. I I think really broadly what she was saying, uh, aside from the choice of words was simply, you know, it, it was just, it'll just be so much more useful uh, to have somebody that, that understands uh, the process better um, you know, uh, I'm sure that people, when they get elected, uh, have a, have a, as Mackenzie King once called it, a, an inordinate urgency for reelection. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, the job is certainly, uh, quite complex. You look at some of the issues they're dealing with and, and I mean, it'd be complex just to make the decisions based on the reports that are put in front of you and the recommendations. But then on top of that, you have the political aspect of the kind of uh, follow you're going to get from the public on, on decisions you make. So in business, you make decisions based on what's in front of you and away you go. In politics, you, you do the same thing, but you still might get political flack, even if you, you've actually made the correct decision. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of balls in the air sometimes on contentious issues when you're on council. John, you... Um you know who has been who you know who would be the kind of people that would be appropriate i guess if if we're using the definition that council was using for an appointment when you were listening did any names you mentioned bob bertina any other names come to mind as people you said yeah you know i'm pretty sure that person's going to be approached to to see if they're interested 
Well, I don't know how the process works um, in in terms of who approaches who, whether whether people just uh, put their name forward. I don't think the process is going to be much different than it was in the past. Uh, council, uh, the staff have put together a process that has never been used before, and and it involves uh, people deciding that they would like to run for the job, and they're going to get a five-minute window to present to council. There will be no questions from council. That that question was asked, and uh, the answer is no. Uh, they, they simply do their presentation, and then on the basis of that, council votes. It sounds like there's going to be a uh, kind of a, a, a one or two rounds so that they can get the number of finalists whittled down so they're not, you know, dealing on the final vote day with three or four. So, I, but I, I think there will be some outreach. We have a number of former councillors uh, in in the city uh, who uh, obviously would fill the, the, the criteria that the mayor is concerned about, and that's previous experience and understanding of council. So I think there'll be a bit of both. I, I think you, you may see some some people that served on council offering themselves, and I think uh, there's no doubt that I think you'll probably see a huddle. Uh, well, you won't see it. It'll just happen. And uh, and that there may be uh, outreach to uh, some former councillor as well. So it, it's going to be interesting in that standpoint. But at the end of the day, um, as I said, with the, you know, it, it's a pretty, once the decision is made and once the candidate is selected, things kind of settle down. Um, there, I, I don't recall any controversy around um, any of the people, whether they've been appointed or or whether um, they won a, uh, you know, in a by-election. I don't recall any great controversy around any of those successful uh, council candidates. So, you know, who knows? Um, who I, knows? I think the process is is as good as it can be given the fact that if, if we went to the by-election, we don't have somebody in the chair until March of next year. And that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be right. Well, and when you talk about some former counselors, I'm sure there's a few former counselors who may not be as busy at these days as what they're doing in a $90,000 paycheck for a year probably wouldn't be something they would scoff at. That's, you know, okay, I'll come back and work for 90,000 bucks a year. I, you know, I'm okay with that. I think there's a bunch of them. Not um, a bad thing, and, and especially in a sense, if you're not running again, you don't have the pressure that, that is on, you know, most of counselors who do want to run again. They're they're heading into a period now where they, they really want to, to, to look good. And, uh, you know, if you're not running again and the pay ain't bad and who's going to fire you if you don't really do the job all that diligently, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, it could be okay. I, I'm, I'm all, John, you, you throwing that name out of Bertina, just for entertainment purposes on council, I'm kind of hoping he throws his hat into the ring here and, uh, just to see how the feathers would get ruffled, because I think there would be some feathers that would get ruffled. Yeah, that's the only reason I mentioned his name. I, I, I wasn't uh, in any way suggesting that he will be a candidate, but uh, um, I, I think that I, I agree with you. I think I think there'd be quite a reaction. I doubt if he'll do it. I, I'm I'm with you on that one, but uh, again, I'm 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 merely thinking from an outsider looking into this from an entertainment perspective right now. And boy, there uh, there may not be a more entertaining scenario than that one. Maybe not the best, but the most entertaining. John Best, be publisher fine. of the Bay Observer. Could be fun, absolutely. Uh, John Best, thanks as always for doing this. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Scott. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a story that I saw that I read about from the United Kingdom the other day. Uh, it was about a, there were two properties and there was a tree that was growing almost exactly on the property line between the two homes hanging over the driveways. Technically though, it was on one of the neighbor's property. I mean, by a couple inches. Anyway, some birds had taken a liking to the tree. And if you've ever parked your car under a bird's nest and then come back outside a little while later, you will know what the problem was. So the one neighbor were the, whose property didn't have the tree officially went to the other neighbor and said, can you do something about this? Our car is getting, you know, splattered day after day. However, the other neighbor said, no, not going to do anything. Live with it. So neighbor number one, who didn't have the tree trunk, took matters into his own hands, took a chainsaw and vertically chopped off any part of the tree that extended over his property. This is what's called a neighbor dispute. Not happy feelings as a result of this ugly tree, not happy feelings. Why do I tell this story? It is my long way of asking if you have good neighbors, because if you have good neighbors, you likely appreciate them. And if you don't, if you have neighbors that cause you a heartache, boy, it is an, it is something that causes stress. It causes anxiety. You probably appreciate the good ones even more. And there are new numbers out that are showing just how important good neighbors are. Christopher Doyle is the managing editor of Next Door, who is behind this. He joins us now. Christopher, how are you today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Um, you've been looking at the value of good neighbors. You've done some surveys and some studies on this and they, as I understand, will really back up the idea, the belief that good neighbors really do matter. Yes, that's absolutely right. You know, it's really interesting and, and we've been following this uh, type of dynamic since really the pandemic began, what, about two years ago. And it's really this shift that we've seen from people really caring only, mostly about themselves to this more community-minded spirit for the common good. So Nextdoor is the neighborhood app. So we're the app where you connect with your local neighbors. And with that comes a lot of utility and a lot of useful recommendations, but also we found a lot of connection. So what we were really interested in looking at was how have people's perceptions of their neighborhood really changed uh, since the start of the pandemic? And so what we found is really interesting. Like I said, this shift from I to we has definitely taken place. And we think that's a really positive thing because we think it's uh, a really good thing to get to know your neighbor and have constructive and really um, you know, helpful relationships. So what we found was that in this study uh, we did of Canadians, um, just this month, we did this in September. So 61% of Canadians say that their neighborhood is one of their most important communities. So that that's an increase. So when you think about different types of communities, whether it might be a workplace community uh, it might be uh, a friend group, it might be families, it might be any, you know, sports organizations and such. So people are now identifying that the neighborhood is really important to them. And I think that's increased because of the challenges we all face together, right? And then I thought what was really interesting, and probably wouldn't be surprising, is that 81% said they've made it more of a priority to support local businesses. So we know that when you know, uh, local businesses are hurting, our local communities are hurting. So we're pulling together and rallying for, for local businesses. And then 71%, throwing a lot of numbers here, but 71% said they've recently felt it's more important to build connections in their neighborhood than outside of their local community. So this is that whole concept I was talking about from, 
from I to we, that I do think there's an increase in this disconnection for this for the common good of my neighborhood. And the technology really has connected us around the world, but we've lacked that connection to our local neighborhood. And I think that we saw that the first wave of the pandemic, as you remember, like it was a, you know, people needed help on our street to get groceries because they couldn't leave the house or, you know, our elderly, elderly or most vulnerable neighbors, oftentimes they needed someone to pick up a prescription for them. Right. So there are these different connection points really hyper locally. Let me go through, let's go through some of these numbers and some of these issues, because there are a bunch of different things here. Let's start with that mm-hmm. 71%. 71% say it's important to build connections in their neighborhood, uh, more important to build connections in the neighborhood than outside their local community. I want to know, when I see that number, who are the 29% who don't want this? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure who those people are. I really don't want to have good relationships with my neighbors. I really want to, you know, have it live in a place where I'm angry, angry and anxious all the time when I come home. I, I don't know who those people would be. It's, it's, you know, it's a great question. And we, we didn't look into that side of it. I, I, I do have a hypothesis around, you know, communities that are built around interests where I might be interested in. And like I said, I use the example of sports, but it could be it could be anything from gaming to you know, any, any number of interests where maybe I'm connecting with a, a community um, that is not necessarily uh, local. But it's interesting what we've also seen organically rise in neighborhoods are interest groups dedicated to things like whether in my neighborhood, there's hundreds of groups, whether it's it's walking or running or golfing or gardening or uh, book clubs and stuff like that. So where people really want to have that, they're craving that connection local. Uh, but you make a good point. I, I guess there are there are different interest groups that might be connected um, outside of the local. But we believe that there's a real importance in the local community. And that's, like you said, having those good relationships with your neighbors. And I think that what we've seen is communities have come closer together. And I think a lot of it might have been by necessity in the early days. Yes. And then what we're yes. seeing, uh, we're seeing the benefits of it. And maybe I, I had someone um, on, actually, on, I posted this on LinkedIn and a couple of people replied and it, it was interesting. And someone said, maybe this is a silver lining. Like, you know, I used to commute in downtown for my job, but I don't anymore. And I, I really get a sense that I know my neighbors better than I did before. And maybe that's a silver lining to all this. And I, I, I think that's probably true. And I also think this seems like very much a throwback because, there was a time, I mean, go watch any old movie or leave it to Beaver episode or whatever else. It seemed like everybody knew their neighbors very well because they walked places or, you know, now for years we've come home, pressed the garage door open in our car, driven the car into the garage, closed the garage, walked into our house and you don't have to see your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And, and it, this, again, this seems very much like a throwback to another time and, and a good throwback to another time. Yeah, you know, I tend to agree. And, and that's why the founders of Nextdoor created this platform was really to, like, they felt that we lacked that sense of connection. And I had that same feeling that you just described, which was I was a commuter. And um, just as you said, like, yeah, the garage door opens, you go in at, at night, and you're just, you know, you're seeing people maybe having a wave in the driveway. Um, and then we were connecting with uh, people we lived with nearby through our kids' sports or activities, right? And you kind of have mm-hmm. this aha moment of like, oh, Oh, a fellow parent on my daughter's soccer team. You just live a street over. It's like, well, why didn't I know you through my neighborhood? Like, why did I meet you through a, a kid's activity? And so I think it is bringing back this sense of, of connection. And, you know, we've also done some research prior to this study around the issue of loneliness. And it's an epidemic that's raging amidst the pandemic. And the isolation that people feel has only been heightened during the pandemic. 
And we found that these connections to your neighbors were really, really super important. In fact, the headline of that study was that knowing as few as six of your neighbors actually reduces feelings of depression and isolation and even financial concerns related to COVID-19, the survey found. And so when you think about that, it's like, well, do you know six neighbors in, in your neighborhood? And if you don't, why don't you? But there are all these different benefits that come with knowing a neighbor. And even the, we've, the, the study even breaks it down in terms of those small interactions I was mentioning actually matter, like running into a neighbor in the lobby of your building if you live in a, a condo unit or those driveway conversations, even a hello. It's just there is a sense of like human connection there that happens and it's yes. healthy for people. And so, yeah, so that's what uh, our platform's all about also is to cultivate kindness and ensure everyone has a neighborhood that they can rely on. So it's really like matching needs in the community to those that can help nearby. And that's going to only, in a crisis especially, it's going to happen locally, right? Those are the people that are going to help. So uh, I chuckled not at what you were saying as being funny. It was just a cynic in me having this thought for a second. It's like, you know, I wonder if this if this answer is really... I think it's really important for my neighbors to get along with me. <laughs> it's it's on them. I want to live in a neighborhood where they get along and they accept what I'm doing. I don't want to cut my grass for six weeks. Hey, be understanding of what I'm doing, whatever else. Uh, I, I, I do wonder how much of that would be that way. Uh, because I don't believe, Christopher, I don't believe, and, and uh, you can take me to task if you think I'm wrong. Even if we are the bad neighbor, I rarely think that we would think we're the bad neighbor. Right? That's, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that I know. Like one of the interesting things about it is that next door is built around proximity, so it's very different, like social graph to use that term, than like I said, LinkedIn, which is like if you think about it, it's like your your colleagues and your professional network. Other platforms are built around interests. Others are built around friends and family. This is one that you've not curated yourself this is the people you live by right and so i think within that it makes it very unique because i like to say it's not an echo chamber because you've not selected and handpicked who you live around but it is where you live and so you're going to have different perspectives so we talk about that a lot where you know you are and i've seen it in my neighborhood a lot where you know neighbors will have an opinion about something actually what i'll give you an example kind of what you're talking about someone posted in my neighborhood and said I think it's really awful that this house down the street from me hasn't uh, cleared the ice away from their walkway. You know, it could be quite dangerous. And so that's a, an opinion that someone had. And then fellow neighbors chimed in with a different perspective and said, well, have you considered, you know, checking in on the neighbor? Maybe it's an elderly neighbor who can't do it. Right. Maybe we should help. We, maybe we should help them. And so it's kind of bringing those perspectives, right? Like, so someone has one opinion of something in the neighborhood and someone brings another perspective. And then our goal as a platform is to try and bring it to a constructive conclusion. Now, there's always going to be, you know, some amount of differing of opinions and such. But I thought that that was a good example kind of locally on my street about like a conversation that happened. And there are different perspectives that you can see, right? And and, and I think it's trying to understand each other, first of all. It's like, let's have a conversation. And the other thing that we talk about a lot, to your point, which I think as you kicked off this segment, actually, it's like we really encourage face-to-face -face connection. It's like getting off of the off of your phone and actually going and meeting your neighbor. And that connection, we it's a better connection that's built when you're doing it face-to-face. -face. And, you know, that's what our platform's all about, too. It's real people that, you know, in your neighborhood that you're interacting with. So we believe that that fosters a better, a better connection and that you're going to get a better resolution when you're actually talking to someone as a person face-to-face -face and just not through a screen, right?
Well, and Chris, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm being naive, but I would like to think that if 71% of people say building this community and this, this connection with your neighbors is very important, that those 71% would also then, when they're making decisions about their house, even though it's their property or their whatever, that they would be contemplating what their neighbors would think as well. Not that you're driving all your life on your knee, but you know, when you talk about ice, if you're capable of doing it or the grass or weeds or what, little things, but things that drive other neighbors nuts. And if you really want to be a, be one of those people who wants to build, uh, thinking about your neighbors would also, I would think be front of mind. Yeah, that's right. And and one of the things we talk about is on our platform is what we call norming this type of behavior, which is just is what you said. It's like when when you do something, when you see someone doing something good for their neighbor, then other people are going to try and mimic that yeah. because yeah. You're, you're kind of norming this behavior for the neighborhood. And and so, um, you know, we've been doing some testing around this sort of like even there's a uh, there's a mediation program that runs in the city of Calgary where volunteer neighborhood mediators Actually, um, when, when people are willing, well, they have a dispute, and it's usually something like you, you mentioned around a property, um, mediators will bring people together to have a conversation. Now, usually they do it face-to-face. In COVID times, they've been doing it on Zoom. Now, you have to have two willing parties who want to talk, but um, I thought that was a great idea. We've tried to bring that kind of element to our platform, too, where, again, there's these types of things I've seen, um, and, and you, you have people saying, well, have you talked to your neighbor? Like bring, bring a drink over, bring a, an adult beverage over and have a conversation about this. And nine times out of 10 or even more, I think these are going to end up in a good resolution. And then other neighbors see that, you know, oh, hey, this is the way that we do it in our neighborhood. We talk to our neighbors about something about their property or, you know, um, if something's happening, we're, we're going to have a tree cut down in our yard. I'm going to let them know and give them a heads up. It's what a good neighbor does, right? And so it's just about being a good neighbor and being kind. And also bring in some common sense, I think, in practicality mm. to it too. Common sense, Co- well, Christopher. What a, what a concept! Common sense <laughs> when dealing with people. Boy, there's a, there's a word that we should tattoo on our arms and walls and everywhere else to remind us. Uh, we. I also want to talk about. You mentioned the number eighty one percent say they've made it more of a priority to support local business. I found this number stunning. Not that I don't love the concept of it, but I would have thought that with COVID and people locked in their homes, basically, that the default would have been just going to Amazon or whatever else and local Mm. businesses would have really suffered. You're saying that's not the case? Yeah, like people have definitely said they're going out of their way to support local and to shop local. And, you know, I've seen some statistics, too, that show that that we've we've uh, we've concluded at Nextdoor from some previous surveys that the majority of purchases that people make are within 15 minutes of their home. And so, you know, it kind of drives home the point too, that I think that when a crisis hits, like our neighbors are at the front line to help us and small business owners are our neighbors, right? And so we know small business owners in our own communities and it's been tough times. And so people are going out of their way, I feel now to, to show their support and to specifically like to your point, like maybe not choose another option and instead support local. And so we, we think that that's a really positive sign because when local businesses thrive, our local communities thrive. So yeah, that number really jumped out at me too when I saw it because it's such a high percentage, I felt. And it's good. I think it's good to see. This is going to be awkward if you're part of the country listening that uh, falls into the lower ebb of this, but are, are there areas of the country that your numbers showed are friendlier for neighborhoods? Are, are there places that are really friendly and places that are a little less so? 
Oh, that's really interesting. You know, we didn't really exactly break it down that way. And I didn't look at it like we didn't look at it like by neighborhood or anything. I did notice that, and this maybe plays up into a perception that people have, like the, 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 the Maritimes are, you know, very friendly place. Uh, very neighborly place. I think all of Canada generally is welcoming, but I did notice in the maritime provinces, Atlantic provinces, the uh, percentage, uh, the percentages were a little bit higher than the Canadian average of all of these. Um, so it seems like the connectedness out there to your neighbor maybe matters even a little bit more. And I think that that, again, I think maybe people would have the perception of the maritimes as a very friendly place. Um, so I did notice that. But I think what we could do as another kind of slice on the data is go into it like by neighborhood by neighborhood and see. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what the benefit of our, 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 our platform is, is we can get those hyper-local insights and just see, you know, what is the friendliest or most welcoming neighborhood in Canada? I think that would be a, a really tight race because there's a lot of welcoming you know, neighborhoods for sure. And you know who would love that information? And, and not that we need to drive real estate prices any higher in Hamilton. They're already completely wacky and out of control. But you know, if you're shopping for a home, as you said a few moments ago, the one thing you can't know, you can look at the house, you can look at the foundation, you you can't really know what the vibe of the neighborhood is. And if there was mm-hmm. something that said, you know, I can look and say, hey, this area, great ratings for neighborliness and for friendliness and for community and everything else, that would, I really believe that would have an impact on bottom line prices for homes. That's interesting. Yeah, you're right. That's the type of thing that you only know once you live there. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing. I know that I think you're and right. And too late if you're wrong. would love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah and, yeah. and too late if you get there and you discover the next door neighbor is, uh, you know, not to your liking. You're stuck. I mean, that, that's, that's such important, crucial life information that we have no idea of when we buy a house. This is true. It is, um, it is a fascinating uh, look at neighbors and neighborhoods and communities. And uh, I mean, the, the encouraging part is that the numbers are high of people who want to do this. Now, the one thing, and we, Christopher, I wish we had more time for this to dive deeper. How many of the 71% who say they really want to do this are doing it? Well, that maybe is a discussion for another day, but at least the thought is there. So we can take some heart in the fact that people want to be good neighbors. That's, that's at least a start. Christopher Doyle, Managing Director of Nextdoor. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.